HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. Heritage Radio Network is food radio supported by you. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org. Hello, everybody, and welcome to a brand new series on Heritage Radio Network called The Culinary Call Sheet, where we give a peek into the back kitchen of culinary media. I'm your host, April Jones. And I'm your co-host, Darren Bresnitz. Part of why we started this show was to offer an unofficial mentorship for anyone who is interested in learning about all aspects of food and video, whether that's TV, social media, online, or just something you want to do for fun. Absolutely. What was once niche or a little silly, as I'm sure you remember, Darren, when we started out. Yes, ma'am. Has now become such a massive playing field for so many creatives using food as the medium. It's something that has driven us professionally and personally for so many years. What excites me the most about this show is that we're going to sit down with some of the industry leaders to hear how they made it and what drew them into this industry. With 20 years in the culinary production game ourselves, we're hoping we can give, through these conversations, an insider's view into personal stories from the field, as well as an in-depth behind-the-scenes look into some of the most popular food programming in today's evolving culinary media landscape. We'll be covering everything from how to style your food, to how to license IP, to developing your own ideas, and some tips from the masters of how to host your own show. Yeah, it's a little bit of conversation, how to, and how do you do the things that you do in culinary media, which I'm so excited about. I love so many of the guests that are coming on this season. We have talent from Food Network, from Vice Media, Eater, Refinery29. We've met some of the best people in the world, both in front of and behind the camera. And we're bringing them all together to share their stories, their delicious adventure, and their unique journey into this crazy world. So to be the first to hear our episodes when they launch this fall, go to wherever podcasts are streaming and hit subscribe and make sure to give us a follow at the Culinary Call Sheet on Instagram.
Welcome to Raw Wine 2022, New York City. Uh, welcome to the Speaker's Corner. Uh, I'm Sam Ben Ruby from the Great Nation Podcast on the Heritage Radio Network. Give us a listen. Our guest today is Harold Langley. Harold is a partner and winemaker at Chateau Le Puy um, in Saint Sabard, France, east of Pomerol and Saint Emilion. Do I have that right? Yeah. Okay. Um, I'm going to let Harold do most of the talking, as I should. Um, and Harold's going to talk about the domain, uh, their philosophy. Um, we're going to get into a discussion about the energy and happiness of the wines. Um, and we have an incredible treat today. Um, we'll be tasting a four-wine vertical, including the 1997, 2001, 2006, and 2009. And I said to you, Harold, outside, I said, why are we not tasting any current vintages? And you said... Said because people don't have the opportunity to test all vintages like this, and that's an opportunity today to offer them. All right, so this opportunity. we can't argue with that. Um, and you're going to realize that starting with the '97, that's a 25-year-old wine, and there are no sulfites added to these wines. So I'm not sure how many of you um, have tasted wines this old that you know have no sulfites. Um, so let's get started. Harold, take it from here. You know, tell us about uh, Le Puy. There's a lot of history, people, vineyards. Sure. Well, first of all, I'd like to say thank you to each of you today because you're obviously taking some of your time to be here with us to listen to me and Sam. So thank you for that. I can see some familiar faces today. Uh, it's good to see you guys. And uh, but I suppose there's also other people here who don't know me and maybe don't know Le Puy. And, and that's good as well. So let's get started. Le Puy, you are an hour, a bit more than an hour away from Bordeaux downtown. On the right bank, towards the east, towards Bergerac if you know a little bit of uh, France. We are 10 kilometers away from Saint-Emilion, and we are at the edge of this wonderful limestone plateau that you might know that make a wonderful bedrock, mother bedrock in Saint-Emilion that start at the end of Pomerol, go to Montagne Saint-Emilion, puis again Saint-Emilion, and reach a plateau where we are called Le Puy. Le Puy, in old French, it means the summit. There's an idea of hill, a plateau, with an idea of a, an elevation. When you actually stand in front of the family house, you are on, on the rooftop of Bordeaux. That's the highest spot uh, where we are. And already, that offers us a particular configuration, as you may understand. Because if you're on the higher spot, it's cooler. And also, there's nothing stopping the ocean wind to blow and to ventilate all our place. One of the 
um, immediate consequence of this is maturity of the fruit we grow here arrive later on because of this situation. And this configuration also creates a huge amount of acidity. This place, Le Puy, <clears throat> it's a very unique and singular place. I don't know if some of you uh, visited us and could uh, testify, but it's a very singular place simply, first of all, because it's been established around an ancient site. On our property, in the heart of an oak tree uh, forest, there is a circle of studded stone dated from the Bronze Age, so 3000 BC. Okay? This type of ancient site were built at that time by Celtic people, like Stonehenge in, uh, in the UK. And these type of sites were built in places where they could feel, obviously, some sort of energy. Because obviously, today, we don't feel anything. We are away from the connection we used to have with Mother Nature. <clears throat> but our horses who live in the field next to this site, they've got five hectares. And do you know where they sleep every night? on the ancient site. And so the family established the Le Puy in 1610 uh, on this spot. You have to imagine, you know, where we are. If I close my eyes and I try to visualize Le Puy to give you a quick description, you can see a humble family house made of limestone in front, there is this plateau with vineyards, but all around is just green hill, forests, ponds, orchard, fields where our horses that accompany us in the vineyard, our cows live. It's a proper uh, ecosystem, and you are basically in the countryside of Bodo. This place here a long time ago, in 1610, our family was just a self-sufficient family, a poor farming family, growing grapes, making wines, but not only, making cereal, uh, making their own meat, basically self-sufficient. And over time, over the 400 years, we tried to keep this same feeling of, of a farm, of an ecosystem, where we try to basically reach a sort of harmony between the vegetal, the animal, and humankind. <clears throat> As I said, the family established the vineyard in 1610, and they've been growing grape, mainly the Merlot, uh, uh, and making wines in the most purest way since 1610 refusing the usage of any entrant since 1610 and forever. We never moved away from uh, this approach. We, our great-granddad, Robert, was the, um, one of the founding fathers of the association called Nature and Progress, the first association in France who set up the first kind of certification for organic. 
you are in 1964, at a moment where intensive agriculture, as you may know, was booming everywhere in the world because you had to feed people after the war. Hmm? And so we were the founding father of that. And then later on in the 80s, we um, adapted the Steiner philosophy to the viticulture along other great winemakers and friends that you may know, like uh, Nicolas Joly from La Coulée de Serran, Marcel Lapierre, Frédéric Henri Roque, Marcel Dice from uh, Alsace. <clears throat> so, so this is uh, basically uh, where we are, who we are, and what we do. Well, today, I didn't come here to talk to you about biodynamic techniques. Not at all. If you expected that, then you should go in the room and taste more wines. I came here today, I don't know why I'm not going to talk about that, just because biodynamic and Steiner philosophy is not a production method for us. It's a lifestyle. Hmm? We leave this for those who are technicians. We are not technicians. We are farmers. Instead of that, I'd rather speak to you about something that is much more important to you in your life as a humankind. Because as a humankind, what are we? We are funny creature, creatures made of flesh and emotions. And we are just try every day of our life to reach a status of happiness in every basic action we're doing. That's what we do. Sleeping, eating, drinking, making love. And our role, or how we see our role as Le Puy, is to offer you happiness through a food called wine. And to offer you this happiness, the wine for us, first of all, it's a beverage, so it needs to be thirst quenching. But it needs to be the purest as it can be. And it needs to offer you <clears throat> the most um, natural molecules that are good for your body. It needs to be texture, digest. But most importantly, it needs to be vibrant, almost energized. And why energized? Because the origin of everything, what is it? The origin of what we do when we grow grapes. Do you know, I know some of the people I talked about that yesterday, so maybe they know the answer, but do you know what is the element that creates the matter, the wood, the leaf, and then the grape at 95% and over? Anybody want to try? There's one element responsible for the matter at 95%. Well, it's not the soil and it's not the water. It's just what we see through the window right now the solar light energy. 95% of the matter is created by the solar light energy. Don't get me wrong, the soil is key, is crucial, as well as the water, obviously, especially with global warming. I mean, the... So what does it mean? 
It means one thing, and I'm not esoteric here at all. It means that grape is energy. And it means that if you do your job correctly as a winemaker, then wine is energy. <clears throat> and to do that, I mean, do you know how the plants create this matter from the energy? But the plant does like you. And when you look in a dictionary for the word, what is life? Life is breathing. And the plants, like you, carry energy or transform one primary energy to another through breathing. Once you understand that, and if, as a winemaker, you want to offer vibrant wine, wine that offers to your body energy, then you understand that the key element in what you, we do is never stop this breathing happening. So some of you might be like, oh my God, what is he talking about? <clears throat> because as a winemaker, we all fear oxygen. Well, not us. Not us at Le Puy. Obviously, it's an unreliable partner, but it's not an enemy. And so everything we do at Le Puy is never stopping this breathing happening and I would say facilitating it from the soil where you're going to create the proper frame for the root network to develop in the ground, for the hearthworm to be there. And then when all these plants are going to accrue all this energy, you're going to pick them by hands and straight away immediately carry an instant fermentation that we do by infusion with obviously indigenous yeast. The fermentation we carried out is fermentation by infusion in open air, that you continue this sudden breathing, I mean this breathing, and after the fermentation, immediately after that, we dynamize the wine. So it's another sort of, we're gonna, I'm gonna talk a little more about that when we gonna present the wine. So it's always energy there, and then you bottle the wine and you've got your wine. Now, I'm, uh, you're probably thinking, well, it's boring with everything he's uh, saying. We need to taste some wine now. Quick question. You yeah. said making the wine by infusion. Yep. Typically, it's by extraction. Yep. I mean, explain you know, that process or technique versus I'll what's typical. I'm just going to finish my previous idea, and then I'll explain that when we're going to be talking All about right, the wine. So to detail it. You're allowing us to taste our first wine? If they want to. So it is the wine on their right? There, you are free to okay. taste the wine the way you want, the most comfortable you think you should taste the wine. There are display in front of you from 2009 on the left to 1997 to the right. And I'm just going to finish while you, you taste. So the wine is made. Now it's going to be the time of the sea when you're going to put the wine to your mouth. And then the wine of Le Puy <clears throat> going to flow into your body. And all the molecules of Le Puy going to get to the receptor of your body. And each molecule delivers a message. 
could be a message of fear, could be a message of disgust. In that case here, it's going to be a message of comfort. Why a message of comfort? Because the wine of Le Puy, because they're made exclusively of natural molecules, they are molecules that your body recognizes without processing them. And you recognize them as a molecules of comfort because you need them. In a glass of Le Puy, you know, wine has always been food. Obviously, today, the molecules that we got in the wine can be replaced by other food, but it's always been food because a glass of Le Puy provides to you zinc, iron, magnesium, calcium, a lot of different molecules that even copper that your brain needs to work on, including vitamin B and other. And because your body recognizes them as molecules of comfort, in exchange, your body is going to release hormones of pleasure. And that's how you reach the status of happiness. And that's how we see uh, our job. To illustrate what I've just uh, talked about, I choose to present today the best wine of us that can illustrate all this idea of energy, uh, and uh, happiness. <clears throat> this wine is called Barthelemy, from the name of an ancestor of us uh, who lived in the 19th century. He was the first ancestor of the family who questioned the usage of sulfur in 1868. He tried and he succeeded in creating his first wine without adding any Sulfur. We have books, you know, from we've got 15 generations at Le Puy of winemakers with books because they used to write down everything. And when Barthélemy described his trial in 1868, he talked about a luminous wine. Maybe now you connect with what I just said the light, luminous. <clears throat> And so uh, in, the, in the 90s, we wanted to, when we found out his book, we did a trial and we created uh, this wine from the original plot of the family, which is just in front of the family house, uh, the original plot from 16 and 10 that's never seen any entrance. Uh, you on the rock. This plot is called the rock because you're basically on the rock, on the limestone. Everything is done by horses because of that, or by hand. And the wine of Barthélemy, <clears throat> and all this wine in front of you, so they're made, I mean, they're made through a fermentation, as I said, by infusion. And so I'm going to reply now to Sam's question. The infusion, <clears throat> you know, I always say at Le Puy, we make more teas, you know, tea, that we make wine. Why? because all the preparation for the vineyards, they are infusion of plants. Horsetail, chamomile, uh, uh, oak tree bark, all of these preparation, you can drink them. It's an infusion of plants, it's like a tea. And the fermentation we carried out at Le Puy, which is, as you understood, fully natural uh, from the indigenous yeast, 
is basically like brewing a tea bag. All the berries go in concrete vat. Why concrete? Because concrete helps with the breathing, again. The fermentation starts, the volume increases, the berries create the cap, and when the cap reaches the lid, we're going to block the cap with five wooden sticks and leave the cap open and leave the juice go through and create pools of wine, bubbling pools of wine above the vat. Your cap is underneath, like a tea bag, like you infuse. When you drink tea, you, inf you brew tea to infuse tannins and the aromas of the tea. And this is what we do at Le Puy. So that's the fermentation. And when the fermentation is finished for Barthélemy, then we keep the wine in barrels, never new oak. And with the fine leaves, we're going to dynamize this wine for two years. What is dynamizing? Well, a lot of people say, well, it's just stirring. No, it's not just stirring, because we've tried just stirring, and it didn't work. Because from the book from Barthélemy, he described, he didn't really write down the recipe of what he did. But he talked about aging on lees. So what did we do? We rolled barrels on the floor with the lees. One year of vinegar. Next year, we put the barrels upside down. Another year of vinegar. The third year, we did stirring like this. Vinegar. And the fourth year, we're like, okay, all the preparation for the vineyards, we dynamize them. So the dynamization is uh, you stir in one side, you stop on the other side, and you create this vortex. We did it, and we stabilized the method. We do this for the one you've got in front of you for two years. At the end of the two years, there's no racking, and there's no lease at the end of the two years. Everything, the wine gobbled up all his lease. All the plant, the energy, all the matter created by the plant, you're drinking it today. There's no filtration, there's no fining. Through the dynamization process, <clears throat> you infuse all these leaves. The first year of dynamization, you're going to release leaves and stabilize your wine. And the second year, you work on the profile of the wine you want to deliver. And because the wine is stabilized by the natural sulfur created by the wine, we don't have to add any sulfur. I choose to show you, as we said previously, these old vintages because you don't have access to them, but choose particular vintages. Vintages that are underrated by what we call the critics. 1997, 2001, 2006, maybe only 2009, but we generally say that in Bordeaux, 2009, they cooked. Well, you tell me if they cook here. Yeah. So I choose on purpose four different, four different and difficult vintage, because it would have been easier to show you the, the best vintages of your sleeve. As people say, there's no best vintages for us. It's just all different, you know? <clears throat> Alors, now I'd, I'd like to add a, another thing to the conversation, because we don't put any sulfur, as you understand. The purpose of this is not the idea of without sulfur. It's the idea of delivering vibrant wine. 
What is sulfur? Sulfur is an antiseptic, so it kills microorganisms. Some of the volatile aromas you get here are created by microorganisms, so you kill them. So obviously, you lose a part of the experience. But more importantly, it's sulfur stops the oxidation. So stop what? If you listen to me, the breathing. And because it stops the breathing, obviously, that's not what we want to, uh, to achieve. Here, you're going to buy not using the sulfur. It's a work on texture. It's a work on aromatic intensity. It's a work really on texture because we are gourmand in French. We like our food. And for us, the difference between great wines and good wines is not about harmony, balance, aromas, complexity, all these things. It's about toucher de bouche, texture. It's the first message that you get. It's a physical message that the wine delivers to you. That's what I wanted to, to tell you today. So four vintages, I'm not going to go through each of them. I'm not going to describe each of them because we believe at Le Puy that wine is an individual emotional uh, experience. So I'll leave you taste the wine. And I think that's the opportunity maybe to reply to your question or to Sam's So hopefully question. everyone is picked up a few wines and tasted them by now. Um, it's a little frustrating for me. I'm whatever Harold wants to do. You take any wine you want, you taste it. You know, usually there's an order or whatever, but I, I trust mean, me, this is the way to do it. So the way to respond to that is um, if you have any questions along the way about any particular wine or, you know, anything we've discussed so far. But I want to keep the discussion going mm -hmm. um, and I want to get your take on something that's very dominant and happening right now and that's climate change yeah. and I want you in the context of Lapui to talk about the impacts and if and how you've innovated yep. um, to handle sure well Two days as talking about uh, climate change, there's one vintage that's basically trigger the climate change. That's really from 2009 that everything was uh, accelerated. Uh, the current vintage we have. Yeah, absolutely. You've got on the table. That's really from 2009 that we've noticed uh, tremendous change. And in, in, I mean, there's. What, um, what we've noticed, obviously, is um, two elements that we're all talking about is the increase of the alcohol level and the fungus pressure, fungus mushroom that can attack your grape and obviously uh, impact, uh, impact your production. <clears throat> but there's also uh, another element we never talk about, or winemaker maybe don't want to talk about, that's happening in the cellar. You know, for years we've been carried out this particular fermentation that I've just talked about, <clears throat> without any control of temperature. I remember fermentation going at 35 degrees Celsius, 
and has been like this at Le Puy forever. And we've never had any issues. And uh, the old man used, always used to say, it's good that uh, temperature increase. You need to increase even more. That's the best way. That's how we do it. Okay. But since 2009, what we can witness more and more, that's one vat that might stop or slow down or that's never happened before. And then that's the beginning of all the trouble that the winemaker don't, generally don't want to talk about. The mice, all the major defaults that at Le Puy we hate. Because if I want to offer you happiness, we don't offer happiness with default. Hmm? And it means that if sometimes you need to use sulfur as well to make sure you don't have default, then you do it. And so there's these three major um, issues. And <clears throat> I have to say, we moved away from the appellation system in 2019 because we felt like we were in prison and not uh, free anymore, especially free to research and to innovate. You know, tradition is not something stuck. There is a core element of our tradition that will never change. But after 15 generations, each generation adds something. Try something. Sometimes it's a failure, you don't keep it. Sometimes it's a success. And you uh, add on to it. And the current uh, generation, and I'm part of this research too, is how we're going to deal with these three different issues. Alcohol, fungus, and uh, fermentation, which the main issue is yeast, basically. <clears throat> so at Le Puy, there's something particular because our soil is uh, made of, there's a topsoil made of red clay. And straight after, it's 50 centimeters, so there's almost no topsoil, you know. Straight after is the limestone. So we basically stand on a sponge. It's water. So it's fantastic for climate change right now. For example, we had a drought at the, during the summer. And when Pomerol was asked the administration to water their vineyard, we were fine because we basically on a sponge. But... Um, and so, but the problem is, there's obviously humidity going there. And so, because you have humidity, you have more uh, pressure of fungus. And we see um, millimeters of water increasing now more and more in springtime, so more fungus. So, we had this idea of, okay, what can we do? Well, maybe move away the leaves and the grape from this humidity area. So, and that was the first thought about that. And then we discover, you know, we have a good friend, uh, Emidio Pepe, uh, in Italy. And you know, over there, they have the pergola. You know what it is? You might have a pergola in your garden as well, with roses. <clears throat> and we saw, oh, actually, that might be a good idea. So, last year, we planted, uh, we, uh, we planted two hectares with 26 different grapes. All are French grapes, no hybrid whatsoever. Just grapes that have proven that they can make great wines, okay? To test and to see uh, how they're reacting to the change of the climate. And we're gonna lead all of them in pergola with this idea of moving away the leaves 
and the grape from the humidity area. Because as I explained as well, we have all our place is blown by rotating winds. So if we high, the leaves are high with the grape plus the ventilation. And the other idea of this pergola was to limit the dehydration of the grape, concentrating the sugar and so the alcohol level. So that's our current thought about, um, about these two impacts of, of climate change. And regarding the, um, the third element that nobody wants to talk about is, is very logical. If you have more sugar, you would need to have more yeast to eat the sugar to transform it. The problem is because you have drought, you don't have condition to increase your population of yeast, but it's more the other way around. Your population, if the graph of sugar is like this, the graph of your yeast population is either like this or slightly down. So obviously, that's the beginning of the, the issue. And so after talking and reading a lot of uh, books on the subject and having thought about that, there's three options that uh, appear to us. The first one is, well, using uh, synthetic yeast. You know, uh, you probably don't know, but Demeter, the organism that certify biodynamic wines, just allowed winemakers to use synthetic yeast in December, which is a major revolution, uh, I can tell you. Obviously, if you use a synthetic yeast, so from outside, it's like if uh, you want to have a baby and you ask the sperm of your neighbor. Sorry for the image, but then you understand. The yeast is a DNA, that's what gives the identity to your wine. So this option, obviously, we can't consider this option. Second option, well, some winemaker said to us, well, Harold, why don't you copy your yeast? We have some great winemakers, I'm not going to mention, then who said this to us. Same difference. Okay. We have roughly 200 species of yeast per year. Spread out on the whole vineyards. Which one do you think gives the identity to Le Puy? Well, the 200 of them. So which one do you use? Which one do you think the factory going to choose to copy to produce your yeast? Well, the one that uh, carried out the fermentation the quickest. And is this what we want? No. And there's a third uh, option, which is very limited, but that's uh, short term, the one we think the best for us, to maintain what makes Le Puy. Because we make an identity wine here. So to guarantee to deliver this identity. Well, obviously, the problem, as I explained, is we never control temperature at Le Puy for fermentation. And so since this year, we set up a system on the vat that never existed at Le Puy to make sure that when the temperature goes, would like to go over the 28 degrees Celsius, then there's like a thermostat, like your heating system in your home, to cool down and to maintain not more than 28 degrees. 
That's for obviously for us and for the old man of the family, as you can imagine, that was kind of a hard revolution to accept. But that's the one that guarantees that we're not selling our soul to whoever and to maintain this identity. What's the concept of that? It's very simple. The yeast start dying after going over this temperature. So the whole, pur the whole purpose of this is just to maintain as much as you can your yeast alive so they, they could still keep eating and so you don't have issue with uh, fermentation anymore. So, but is that what prompted Demeter to allow synthetic yeast because of that? I mean, well, it seems <coughs> counter to everything they did. Well, we discovered that Demeter, uh, I mean, they released a new, uh, new criteria in last December. They didn't do any communication about that, and I understand why, because we were part of the initial cahier um, des charges. So, um, I don't know in English, but the first criteria is to get the appellation. I, I can tell you they were very strict about this kind of thing. Why do you think they accept now to the, they offer winemakers to use exogen yeast? It's just because we're all facing the same issue. And if they don't allow this, then it's finished. There's no more <laughs> biodynamic. It's just really witnessing that this is a major issue for everybody. And that's re based on this, uh, uh, I mean, impacted by climate change. Yeah. So, and that's not the only. All options have been exhausted. Do you feel, or not necessarily, where they introduce synthetic yeast? It seems like. Well, what else can you do? Well, there's another option that you can hear more and more in Bordeaux and somewhere else. There, there are the hybrid grapes. And people don't talk specifically about the benefit of it. We're not only talking about uh, hybrids that uh, have immune system to fight some fungus or disease. But most of these hybrid grapes, they actually produce more yeast. And that's why we can see this happening more and more. So Bordeaux is so well known for Cabernet Sauvignon, Merlot, and the other blending grapes, Petit yep. Verdot. Burgundy is singularly Pinot Noir. Do you see a direction where Bordeaux, the grapes will be these hybrids? I mean, it, it doesn't seem like it's right in front of us. Well, I can tell you something. The right hand of the French agricultural minister talked about hybrid very recently. In, uh, in an article, okay. and I was shocked about that. Now, there's another option. But wait, can you, a hybrid of, what are the hybrids? I mean, what are they playing with or experimenting with? A hybrid of what grapes? Well, I, I don't know all the details of the bazaar because we're not interested in that. Okay. Uh, it's a topic Fair to, voilà. but what I want to add, and, and is, um, I think, a more interesting topic is a question that nobody just think about or talk about is why can you, we think one second that these old grapes like Merlot can adapt climate change? At Le Puy, the average age of the vineyard is 50 years old. So you back this before the 70s and all the clone vines 
that you see in vineyards, they started to be planted from the 70s. So at Le Puy, we've got roughly 40% of our vines that are individual, like you, like me. They're all different. They all have a different DNA, immune system, etc. This is through diversity that we can solve and increase immune system and increase the adaptation of things. And we believe, and we can already see, that some plot of land react differently to this climate change. As we do, our, our body adapt to this climate change, why can't we think as well that through selection massal, and maybe other things that we will discover, I'm talking obviously today about what are our short-term uh, direction, but there's an ongoing uh, um, thought about all these different topics. But why don't we think about that as well? Why would it not be possible to imagine that? Well, I, I agree. I just I think you and I know that most people are not thinking that way. Yep. You know, I mean that's the problem. People are just figuring out how to move ahead, and maybe the synthetic yeasts, you know, will solve that problem to them. That that's not how you want to make wine. Like we resolve the issue of feeding people with intensive agriculture, and now we move the way we go back to what it should be. So. That's why I'm talking about that, because we need to also to raise this point. And uh, if we one day, if France, if France choose to go towards the hybrid grape, so then that will be the end of the French vineyard, definitely. Because we don't produce wine of grape, we produce identity wine. And if we move on to hybrid grape, then that's the end of the identity of our wine and the end of the French vineyard. This is my, this is just my own opinion. Huh? So. Everyone, I hope by now has tasted all the wines. Um, I ask of you if you have any questions specific to the wines or specific to what we've been discussing, please feel free, free to throw your arm up and if you have a question, we'll be glad to. Um, all right. Please. Do you have a rope? Take the one from the. Uh... Yes, I. We have four wines. Uh, they're all made the same process. There's one. I'm not sure of the vintage. So you have a lot of more 2001. Then you have a lot. Well, in my glass, I don't know if it's every glass is the same. But the pot. Yeah. And compared to your technique that you were talking, stirring left, right, going. So it's clearly it's been absorbed in the others. Is there a reason why one vintage it was not? What you have to understand as well is um, when you dynamize wine. And so when you, you have really this process of infusing the lees and the wine really gobble the lees, but what's happened over time is in the bottle, the wine recreates. Not all vintages, some are more impacted by that than others. In 2001, uh, 
uh, is one of them. Don't ask me why this vintage in particular. That's one of the mysterious things of wine. Sometimes you can't explain uh, everything. But in general, this is what happened with the wine we dynamize. They might recreate sediments uh, in a bottle. When you look at a bottle of Barthélemy, generally, as you can see, the mark on the, on the glass like this. So that's why we always um, uh, advise our amateurs to decant Barthélemy as opposed to another wine that you may know at Le Puy, which is Emilien, you don't really need to uh, decant unless uh, they're very old uh, vintages. Yeah. Um, these wines are predominantly Merlot? Yes, because um, what you find on this plot is 85% Merlot and 15% Cabernet Sauvignon. Is that where the blending winds up? That's or a not reflection of the plots. Only. The plot. So each vintage, the blending will vary based on the vintage, right? Absolutely. Okay. Uh, any other questions, observations, tasting notes? Okay. Uh, I have a question, but I have to ask. Maybe you could comment on the agility, and maybe, sorry, I, I, I missed the beginning, but I mean, I'm amazed as to how youthful these wines are. You know, it's completely so type free. Obviously, there's the tannic structure, the, the, the food intensity is there. But for me, I'm, I'm, I'm really amazed as to you know, how incredibly youthful they are. So maybe you could talk to us a little bit about the agility and, and your experience of tasting, because I know you've got a, a library of very old vintages, so I'd be interested if you could comment on that. <clears throat> yeah, and that was as well the, not the statement, but something I wanted to open your eyes on today. You've got in front of you a wine that is 25 years old. If you look at the analysis of this wine, you won't see any detection of sulfur. However, for this wine not to be uh, vinegar, it was stabilized from the natural sulfur created uh, by the wine. We sh one month ago, we were here in New York and uh, to thank all our amateurs, we displayed 20 vintages of Le Puy from 1921 to 2021. And all of them, they are all drinkable and they age uh, harmoniously. I don't know any uh, wine that can't age properly uh, uh, at Le Puy. I think there's a, what, I mean, you probably feel, felt it, but the key element of Le Puy, of our place, after the rock, is acidity. This land is a reservoir of acidity. 400 years of being organic. We, you know, when we decide the day to pick the grape, we never look at sugar and acidity. Never. You don't have to look at that. There's so much of it. We look at the um, ripeness of the pip. And so what I believe is one of the magic uh, elements that make this wine aging all this time is this Acidity based, you know, some of our red wines have got, got the pH of white wine, so very low. Mm -hmm. And I would add as well, including the volatile acidity that contribute to it, because the way we make our wine, the volatile, so the vinegar element, uh, that you don't perceive because your palate perceives it from a certain level, 
is there and contribute as well to uh, the aging of the wine. Isabel mentioned um, the tannins. Of course, we have grape in Bordeaux that offer that. That's a bit different to the Pinot. But the key element, I think, because there, there are wine in Bordeaux that can't age. After 20 years, you drink them, they're gone. The key element is our fermentation process, this infusion fermentation. When we brew it, there's no uh, oxygen. The juice is oxidated, but never the pips and, um, and the skin. And that's really, we believe this process is going to really integrate the tenants within the wine and I think help then the, the, the aging uh, of the wine. So uh, you mentioned because of climate change, which we talked about, you pick later, right? Well, we pick later, first of all, because we hire. And right, historic, elevation. Historically, we used to pick, uh, I remember eight years ago, we used to pick like 15 days after Saint-Emilion. 15 days. as Earlier? Uh, no, after. After, I'm sorry. After, because it's cooler. Now, with climate change, this year, it's seven days. You see? Does In that, eight years. So you mentioned how important acidity is. Yep. Does that affect... Do you have to keep an eye on the acidity? Not yet. As I said, so far, we don't have any problem of acidity. You know why? Because limestone, as well, produce so much acidity. And we basically on the rock. So, and <clears throat> so because we're high, climate change come, I mean, is delayed right. by our situation. And we have this fantastic configuration of being... Uh, on this rock, providing water, because the whole French vineyard is going to change dramatically in the coming years. I can tell you, there's not going to be any more homogeneity in vintages. The water is going to be the key element. All our plots that were on drainage soil this year, they were not the best ones, for sure. All the ones that were on the rock or on the plateau, full of life during all the droughts. And so, you know, it's funny because at Le Puy, we've always said the best plots are in the valley, not on the plateau. Why? Because the plateau was providing so much humidity and so, so much fungus pressure that, the for, that was for them the, the problem of the property. And the problem become our future benefit, our future advantage. And that's, so that's gonna, and I've, you know, <clears throat> more and more you can, uh, you can see in Bordeaux the, uh, that there's no more homogeneity in vintage, and that's gonna be dramatically uh, directed by this. Is your place connected with some presence of water or not? We have got, well, what I didn't say is there's also four springs of water that go through our plateau through the rock, so that's, um, so we're lucky with that. But it doesn't stop us, obviously, as you understand, to have consistent, uh, I mean, uh, thought to imagine the future and anticipating. Um, 
We have to wrap up soon. Yeah. So last chance. Any questions? Yes. Vladimir. Uh, I have a technical question. Uh, I was very uh, interested in the concept of dynamization of the line that you are describing. Um, if I understood it correctly, you use more or less the same procedure as when dynamizing the preparations. Yeah. Uh, but uh, what uh, I was not sure about is that you do this during the aging of the wine during the time of two years, but what is the frequency? You repeat the process at some intervals or? So, um, we generally, generally do things based on the moon calendar, which is what the ancestor used to do and what Steiner obviously uh, set up in his philosophy. <clears throat> so, most of the things we do, we do it on, on fruit day. The problem of this moon calendar is it doesn't take account of the weather. And you can be on fruit day with a, a day like yesterday with low cloud, uh, bad pressure and water, and that's not the right day to dynamize. So we can dynamize wine between zero to three times per day, uh, per week, sorry, which is a lot of work. But to be more precise, when we dynamize the plant infusion for the vineyards, the machine dynamizes for one, one hour. During the aging of wine, you obviously don't spend an hour per barrel. <laughs> Otherwise, that wouldn't be very uh, efficient. Um, but, and you don't need it. Over time, by empirism, we realize that when you start dynamizing, oh, first of all, you remove some of the wine from the barrel. You start dynamizing. And you can see through la bonde, the lead, the vortex created. And at some point, there is some foam that come up. Boop. And that's what we call the chaos. And we know by empirism, so basically doing this, we discover that from this point, that's it. You don't need to do any, anything more. You put the one you remove back to the barrel and you move to another barrel. Now, one thing even more interesting as well, dynamization. Dynamizing. There's an idea of something dynamic. I don't know if uh, I tell this story to these guys yesterday, but we in our cellar there is an old guy called Hervé. He's been at the property for 35 years. You have to imagine he's a big guy, big arms, 80 barrels to dynamize. He's got arms like this. Bon. And two years ago, he got injured. Not, dy not dynamizing in his own life. So we had to hire another person, and we had the opportunity to hire a girl. And we saw, hmm, that's cool. That's going to probably add something interesting to the wine. You know, each wine is a reflect of the person that make it. And if you taste a 1944 at Le Puy, like we did in New York a month ago, which was a woman wine, because the men were at war, well, you can taste the difference. Coming back to what I was saying, <clears throat> so she started to replace Hervé in dynamizing the wine. Bon. As I said, the first year of dynamization, 
you put the lease in suspension and you infuse the lease and you stabilize your wine. There's not much uh, impact on the aromatic profile of your wine for the, that first year. You really shape the profile of the wine you deliver from the second year. And each month is crucial. You can see the progression of the profile coming. And with that girl, after one month, no change. Second month, no change. Third month. And I'm like, what's going on? Well, we were like, because we are seven winemakers of Le Puyen. You know, uh, sometimes said to me yesterday, you are the winemakers? Say, one of them, we seven. Seven? Yes, because if you want to pass on knowledge for 15 generations, you can't put the knowledge in two hands, but in a group of person. So we were all like, oh my God, we don't recognize Bartholomew here. So, okay, tomorrow she's supposed to dynamize. We're not going to tell her, we're going to look at her. And we turn up in a cellar and she was dynamizing like this. She was very delicate. And that's why it was not working. Dynamization. Dynamic. You not only, I talked about breathing through the vortex from the lid to the bottom of the barrel, but there's another element to it. We transfer some of our energy to the wine. And Hervé, if you look at Hervé when he is doing it, he is dynamic and he transfers really energy to it. So we had, so we said to her, well, from tomorrow on, onwards, Maybe you're going to do another job here. Okay. And we had another man back to this role who dynamized the wine in the same way as Hervé. And the months after, the wine came back to where it was supposed to be. So the whole purpose, I mean, the whole dynamization process is really energy and breath to carry it. So again, the theme of today is energy. Hmm? from the origin to the glass here. That's a great story. All right, we have to wrap up. Okay. Um, hopefully there's no final questions. Well, I hope you somehow reach some status of happiness tasting, tasting the wine today. If you want to taste more of our wines, more recent wine, I'll be behind my uh, table uh, and you're free to come and taste them with me. Thank you for being here. Thank you for being patient and listening uh, to me. I hope uh, you did learn something uh, more about uh, Le Puy and, uh, and our philosophy. And uh, hope to see you soon. So don't forget we had a 1997 <laughs> that had no sulfites that if anyone asks you, you know, do however you want to term it, natural, organic, but do they age? Um, this wine is wonderful, and that should answer your question. I want to thank our guest, Harold Langlais from Chateau Le Puy, for discussing and sharing his wines. This was a treat. Um, thank you all for attending the Speaker's Corner at Raw Wine in New York City. I'm Sam Ben Ruby from The Grape Nation on the Heritage Radio Network. Please listen to our podcast, and I'll tell you why. This week, 
Isabel Legeron is on it. We had the great opportunity to sit down with Isabel and discuss all things raw wine, natural wine, and a lot of other stuff. So that's uh, a great episode. Um, enjoy the rest of the day. And again, thank you for coming. The Grape Nation is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. Keep in touch at heritageradionetwork.org slash subscribe.